This is the fourth program in this NLP training. And we're going to begin this series by giving you information and techniques that you can use. So up until this point, we've been giving you information. Now we're going to get stuck into what you can do out in the real world. And I'd like to begin by talking about sensory acuity and observing other people. In modeling, Dr. Milton Erickson, one of the people that was observed when creating NLP, he observed that people actually make minute changes from moment to moment and that those minute changes have some meaning. So he was asked, when you look over at a woman, how do you know that she's in trance? And on this particular occasion, he said, I observed that she was in trance because the beating of the pulse on her ankle slowed down. Now, he was about as far away as you would be sitting on opposite sides of a regular lounge room. And yet, across all that distance, he could observe the change in the beating of a pulse on the ankle. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but Erickson had polio and he was bedridden when he was 18. And Milton Erickson became very good at modelling. He was very good at sensory acuity. In fact, he learned how to walk again by watching his baby sister learn how to walk. So he was 18 and she began to walk. And he had really great powers of observation. And he could see things that other people generally didn't see. He observed greatly. And he noticed minute changes that people made from moment to moment. And so essentially in NLP, what we do is code these behaviours. And there's a lot of different things that you can begin to look at. You can look at the entire body of the person. However, we're going to talk about certain things that when you pay attention to these things, it'll make a big difference in your ability to notice what's going on in other people. I was told when I was a child that in order to be polite, I needed to look someone in the eyes when they were talking to me. And so for me, it almost became impossible to break eye contact. But with NLP, we want you to look at all different parts of the person at the same time, rather than having complete eye contact. And by doing that, you'll be able to pick up through sensory acuity what's going on with the person at all times. The better your sensory acuity, the better you'll be able to see and you'll notice if the information that you're getting from the other person is correct and you'll notice if the information you're giving the other person is going in and being received well. So all you need to do is keep communicating and you'll start to notice. So you'd all like to communicate better, wouldn't you? Master communicators of all time are the ones who have had the ability to notice things and notice the changes within the people they're communicating with. I was once at an event and I noticed that as I was talking to a lady that what I was saying really wasn't getting through. And I remember thinking to myself, I better change my behavior quickly. Now remember the five principles of success and one of them is to have enough sensory acuity to notice what's going on around you and to notice what's going on with the person that you're communicating with. So if you're sitting there and you're talking to someone and the communication isn't getting through, then you have to change. You must shift gears and move into a different physiological state 
But how are you going to notice in the first place? Sensory acuity is really the basis for everything we do in NLP. It's the observational basis for being able to know whether or not we're communicating in a way which will produce the kind of results we wish to produce. Now, if you pay attention to sensory acuity, this will make you into a master communicator. Whether you're working with groups or individuals, whether you're working one-on-one -on -one in business, education or therapy, the ability to have great sensory acuity will make all the difference in communication. Let me give you an example. I was in a presentation, I was actually in a speaking presentation, a small one in someone else's event. I was chatting away and I noticed after about 30 minutes that there was one person in the room that wasn't really with anything that I was saying. And so I stopped the whole presentation and I said to her, it occurs to me that you're not really following where I'm at. And she said, yep, you're right. I, I don't really buy anything you're saying. What I did was actually then do an on-stage demonstration of the technique that I was talking about. And I just paid attention to her skin color, her skin tone, her breathing, her lower lip size and the eyes in terms of pupil dilation and focus. And I watched her change as my communication changed. What we noticed is that we were able to see things that other people couldn't see. And so in NLP, people get, began to wonder what was it that Ericsson was doing? And when we examine Ericsson's behavior, the thing he did every time was observing a person with full attention. And if we observe these particular things, we'll get a lot of information. So before we actually get into them, let me talk about calibration. For example, if we're going to look at somebody and see that they're in a certain state, we might take a mental picture of it if we were visual. And then we're going to compare that to what we're seeing now on the person in front of us rather than on the picture that we'd already made in our mind. Then we're going to have to notice what to look at to see the differences. So this means we're first of all going to have to have a baseline and the baseline is created by asking the person. So this is one of the exercises that we'll do in the training room. You'll get to look at the other person and notice their skin color, notice the skin tone, notice their breathing, the lower lip size and the eyes, and anything else you can observe. And then we'll ask them to think about someone they dislike and you'll notice a difference. While you're listening to this at home, what I want you to do over the next few days is just pay attention to people and notice how as people hear different things from you, these changes start to occur. So changes in their skin color, their skin tonus, their pupil size, their lower lip size, and the rate at which they're breathing. And I just want you to go through that and think about the changes that occur in relation to this discussion. So number one, skin color. And that's a shift from light to dark. Now, a lot of people, when they look at skin color, they look for redness to light color or whiteness. But in fact, different people have different colors of skin. So we'd like you to calibrate on the lightness to darkness. And the best way to do that is just imagine that you're actually looking at the person in a black and white photo. And you'll notice that the picture gets darker or lighter. And that's gonna be the difference between 
those two. So you'll notice if they're light or you'll notice if they're dark. The next one is skin tone. And that's the tone of the muscles or the tension of the muscles under the skin. So you can look for the shine on the skin. Light usually reflects off the skin in different ways. And even if someone's put on a lot of makeup, you'll find that the light bounces off the skin in a particular way where there's tone and in a different way where there's no tone. And we're looking for whether the tone is symmetrical or asymmetrical. And if you pay attention to the symmetry of the face, that will also give you a certain amount of meaning. Now, number three is breathing. And I don't know if you've noticed this with yourself and with others. Breathing will change its rate and its location. So it can go in rate from fast to slow. And in location, it can go from high to low in the body. When I say high, it's up near the shoulders. And when I say low, it's a nice big belly breath. So if you just want to stop for a second and stick your chest out, stick it all the way out, make it really big and put your hands just above your tummy, your belly button. That's the bottom of your chest. And if you breathe deep into there, you'll notice that that's belly breathing. And now if you move your hands just under your collarbones, that's your upper chest. And if you breathe into there, you'll notice that that's up breathing. You'll also notice the speed at which people breathe. Now, often kinesthetic people breathe very slowly. And the fast, the slow, the high, the low, they're not always necessarily tied together. However, sometimes they are. So you just begin to pay attention to the shift that people go through when they're breathing. Lower lip size. This is something that people regularly don't notice. And what most people don't know is that the lower lip changes from moment to moment. Actually, what's happening is it's getting more or less blood in it. So as it gets more blood, the lower lip expands and there's less lines because it becomes more swollen. And as it shrinks, there's more and more lines. So the easiest way to check on the lower lip size is to look for the lines and the thickness of the lower lip from the top to the bottom of the lip. So we're not looking side to side, we're looking top to bottom. Now, number five, the eyes will change their focus and the dilation of the pupils changes. So you need to look at that as well. What we're going to do when we do exercises is as well as doing the exercise that you're doing for the practitioner training when you're in the room, we're also going to look at the person's skin color, tonus, breathing, lower lip size and their eyes. And you might also notice the tilt of their head, their eyebrows and other things. So you're going to look at their entire face when you do the exercises. And you'll be able to see quite quickly the differences in the face. And we talked before about that exercise with people who you like and people who you dislike. And you'll be able to pick up the differences in the person you're working with's face as they think of the person they like and then they think of the person they don't like. And you could try that at home if you wanted to. Then Milton Erickson was able to see all these things and eventually you'll be able to see all these things too really well and it may seem like you're a magician. Master communicators have always been seen this way because they've always been able to observe people in this way. And remember earlier I spoke, to, spoke about Milton Erickson seeing the pulse on the woman's ankle. Obviously he practiced how to notice that. 
So becoming familiar with looking at people's skin colour and tone and watching the shift that occurs as different subjects come up will allow you to become a real master of observation. And if you do that, it leads you towards being a masterful communicator. And you'll find more and more joy in communication because you can actually see the results you're producing as you're communicating. It just takes practice. Okay, let's move on and look at rapport. One of the major things that master communicators have an ability to do is to get into rapport with their audience. Whether you're communicating one-on-one -on -one or with groups of people, and whether you're communicating in business, education or therapy, rapport is one of the most important processes. When we're talking about hypnosis, rapport means the state where the subject who's in hypnosis accepts suggestions uncritically when given to them by the hypnotherapist. NLP talks more about rapport as a process. Until NLP was invented or modelled, rapport as a process was generally not talked about. And this is one of the great offerings that NLP has given to the world. How do you get into that state where your communication is uncritically accepted by anyone whom you communicate to? Now that's really important. It's almost a magical state where the subject actually listens to you very, very carefully at the unconscious level. And one of the best things that NLP has given us is the process of rapport and denominalizing the process of rapport. It refers to the process and then turns it back into a series of steps to figure out how you gain rapport. So this next segment is talking about how you gain rapport with other people. How do you set up the conditions when you're communicating with someone so that you're communicating directly with their unconscious mind? What rapport does is allow for that communication to go directly into the unconscious mind of your client. The NLP theory of rapport is based on a study that was originally done in 1970 at the University of Pennsylvania by a guy named Ray L. Birdwistle. And the name of the study was Physics and Communication. And Birdwistle discovered that in communication, only 7% of the communication that humans use were the words that we use. And a massive 38% of communication was communicated by the tone of voice. And then an even greater 55% of communication was communicated by the physiology of the body. Most of you will have thought that your words were important. And in fact, many of you have listened to others' words and allowed them to impact your life. And words are important. However, 93% of what we communicate is unconscious, communicated unconsciously through tone of voice and physiology. When Bert Whistle started looking at this study, he was really looking at physics and communication. So it was a physiological study anyway, so it's possibly slightly biased. However, what he discovered 
is that a lot of what we're communicating is being communicated unconsciously to our clients. And so if we're communicating unconsciously to our clients, we want to consciously use that unconscious communication. So how do you begin to consciously establish rapport with someone at the unconscious level? How do you begin to establish communication with the client's unconscious mind? And that's the key to rapport. So it's a known fact that when people are like each other, they like each other. So rapport is a process of responsiveness. It's a process where we start communication with someone and we look and find common things. So usually when people get together, they start the conversation with, oh, where did you go to school? And they find they all went to the same school. So usually when people get together, they go, well, where did you go to school? And if they find they all went to the same school, then they're buddies. Or they might say, you know, where did you go to university? I went to this university. I went to that one. Or where did you grow up? Or I love your hair color. Or how tall are you? And all of these kinds of things are to look for commonalities. Sometimes it'll be something like, well, what other kinds of problems have you had? And usually, as they start to get to know each other, they begin to find a common ground and they find it consciously. This happens when people are attempting to establish rapport with one another. However, rapport in NLP is more about establishing an unconscious common ground. It's, for example, when you match and mirror someone. What you're doing is doing it outside of the client's awareness and you're establishing a common ground where the unconscious mind can begin to look across at you and say, ah, this person's just like me. And so as we start to match or mirror the client in NLP, we begin to establish rapport. Now there's a difference between matching and mirroring, and I'll explain to you what those are. Assuming that you're in a place where you can do this safely, what I'd like you to do is raise your right hand as if you're asking a question. Okay, great. Now imagine that I'm going to raise my left hand and you're facing me. Notice that that looks as if you're looking into the mirror. You have your right hand raised and I have my left hand raised and we're facing each other. That's called mirroring. So I would actually act as though I were mirroring you back to you. Now, if you raise your right hand and I raise my right hand, I'm actually matching you. So it looks a lot less like a mirror and I'm still doing the same thing that you are. And that's called matching in NLP. Now, you may be thinking that you'll get caught. You won't get caught. Unless you're overly overt about it, this will go unnoticed by the client. So the best rapport occurs at the unconscious level. The best rapport occurs outside of the client's awareness, outside of their conscious awareness. So whenever you're doing processes that will lead you to rapport, whenever you're matching or mirroring, make sure that the thing that you're matching or mirroring is subtle and outside of the client's awareness. For example, if I'm talking and I'm gesturing with my hands in big expansive gestures, 
then your gestures should also be expansive, however not while I'm doing mine. So when it's your turn to talk, you would use your larger gestures. In the whole time I've been doing this, I've never actually had someone other than a child say to me, hey, you're copying me. Although I have had people copy me. So it needs to stay outside of the client's awareness. And in that way, it'll be the most effective. And I remember a time when this came in really handy. Simon and I were traveling back from Melbourne. We'd planned to stay the night in Melbourne and then realized that it was the Grand Prix. And so there were no hotels booked. And so we thought, well, we'll just drive towards home and surely there'll be a hotel on the way. However, we drove for three hours and still didn't find anywhere. And eventually I rang a place and it was almost midnight by now. And they said, yes, we've got a room. And it was a tiny little pub off the main road in a little town on the way back from Melbourne. And we checked in. The first room we went to, it was just, just dirty. I had to do a live video in the morning on Facebook and I just didn't want to be in a dirty room. I needed a room that looked reasonable at least and hoped that it would look great. So I went to the person at the front desk and she was bent down and her hands were on the desk. She looked a bit sad. So I assumed the way that she would talk. And I did a pretty good job of working out what her voice was like. And then I matched her posture. And as she looked up, I noticed that we went into rapport immediately. Now, how did I notice? Well, I noticed using the sensory acuity tools, things like the eye pupil size, the lower lip size, the breathing, the skin tone and the skin color. So as she looked up, we went into rapport almost immediately. And I said to her, you know, I actually really need a hand. I have this video tomorrow and I'm not really, you know, it's not that great a room and I'm okay to sleep there. However, is there a room I could use in the morning? And she said, oh, I'll have to go and check. And she went away and she came back and she upgraded us to a beautiful suite that was probably one of the nicest hotel rooms we've ever stayed in. So rapport is a fantastic thing that is wonderful to know because it's great to use when you need it. And it's also great to use when you simply just want to get your message across to be able to communicate it to people. The more you use it, you'll find that your communication will improve and you'll be able to communicate with anyone. And that has benefits in things like sales, it has benefits in relationships, it has benefits in education, it has benefits in business, and it has benefits in therapy. In the next couple of days and weeks before the training, it would be great if you could practice rapport. So I would practice matching and mirroring people. And I would practice looking at the sensory acuity that you've already developed. So let's see what is it that we're going to actually match or mirror? And you don't have to do all of them, just some of them, just enough to get into rapport with someone. So the first thing I do when I sit down next to someone is I adopt their physiology slowly as I sit down. So by the time I'm fully sitting down, I'm probably sitting the same way that they are. So what I'm doing is adopting their posture. Are they leaning to the right or the left with their back? 
Are they sitting on a chair? Is their buttocks all the way back towards the back of the chair or is it out on the front edge of the chair? Are they leaning forward or leaning backwards? Are they sitting up straight? What does the spine look like? Is it straight and upright? Does it lean to the left or lean to the right? I'm going to adopt their gestures and I'm going to match their gestures. Not all the time, but I'm going to adopt them. For example, if they're doing something when they're speaking, then I'm going to adopt those gestures when I'm speaking. And I may even adopt their facial expression and the tilt of their head. I may adopt their breathing and their blinking. In fact, I could adopt all of those. I could use the same facial expressions and even blink in synchronicity with them. I could essentially blink at the same time. It's a powerful thing to match someone's breathing. So you breathe in at the same time they breathe in and you breathe out at the same time they breathe out. Remember, when a person is speaking, they're breathing out. So while they're speaking, you're going to breathe out. And when they stop to take a breath, you can breathe in. That's matching physiology and breathing is really important. There was a hypnotist in 1957 and he did stage shows. And he said that one of the most important things he does during his stage show was to get the audience to breathe in unison with him so that he doesn't breathe in unison with them. He gets them to breathe in unison with him. Now that's right. It's the telling of it. He asks his audience to breathe with him. So he gets them to match him. And he'd raise his arms above his head and say, okay, take a big breath in and go. And as he took the deep breath, he'd raise his hands up above his head until they were fully extended when the audience breathed all the way in. And as they breathed out, he would lower his arms. Now what he was doing was called crossover mirroring. So even though he was breathing at the same time too, he was actually using a different part of his body to mirror what the audience was doing. So as they were breathing, he was moving his arms. Now you can do this in many ways. For example, if someone is speaking really quickly, you could tap your foot or your finger at the same speed of their voice. So if someone's producing a behavior that's really fast and you want them to slow down a bit, get into rapport with them and then slow it down kinesthetically, slower and slower until it eventually stops. That's physiology. We can also match the voice. Now, voice matching is extremely powerful on the telephone. And something that we use in sales training for telephone sales is how to match the tone of voice as quickly as possible. Now, what are we going to match? Well, we're going to match the pitch of the voice, the tone. For example, if you're talking to a woman and you're a man, you're not going to get exactly the same tonality. But if you're a man and you're talking to a woman, go up into the high range of your voice. And if you're a woman talking to a man, go into the low range of your voice. Drop your tone to where theirs is or increase your tone to where theirs is. Because it's not going to sound very good if you sound like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> That's not going to really be in the unconscious. It'll be conscious. So the thing is you shift your tonality. 
and you just put yours in the same range. So then you can match the pitch and you can also match the tempo. So you pick up the phone sometimes and you know some people are just like, oh, hey, how are you going? And it's really slow. And so you just take a deep breath and you slow all the way down and you say, hey, in the same speed as them. And other people may be talking really fast like this. And so what you're going to do is you're going to match your tempo and you're going to speak a little faster too. So you can match the speed and you can pick up the speed. Now, the timbre is the quality of the voice. Some voices are very clear and crisp and sharp and other voices are very raspy. And you can talk in a raspy voice or a sharp voice. So there's a timbre to the voice. And then there's the loudness. Some people talk really loudly on the phone. Hello! And other people talk really quietly. Hello, how are you? And so you can match the loudness of the voice as you're talking to the person. This is very effective in telephone sales to match the voice as you start the call. And you can do this when you're in person too. In fact, voice is quite underrepresented in our world today. Auditory listeners were more highly represented when there were storytellers and poets and singers. Today there's more watching TV and so visual is more highly represented than auditory. So using voice matching is actually really good because it's often outside of people's awareness. You can match their tonality, the tempo, the timbre and the volume. And you can gain quite rapid rapport by doing that. Next is rapport and words. So first of all, you can match predicates. And we'll talk about predicates shortly. You can match keywords. The way that you match keywords is you really listen to what people are saying. And you listen to the specific words that they use. So for example, someone may regularly use one particular word. And so if you were presenting something to them, say you were in a consulting relationship and you were presenting a new package to them, you would want to insert that keyword into the sentence. And then that person will be fully on board because they resonate with you because you found that word. So if you find some keywords that are idiosyncratic, so specific to the person who's using them, or if you find some keywords that are out of the ordinary, then utilize those as quickly as you can, give them about five minutes or so, and then feed them back to the person. Okay, the next thing is common experiences and associations. And of course, this is what most people look for when they attempt to get into rapport with people. Questions like, did you go to the same school? Did you come from the same part of the country? What high school did you go to? All those kinds of things are usual questions, usual conversation that people use in establishing rapport. And they're valuable because they work. And then finally, we have content chunks. And that means how do people group their words together? So some people group their words in very short blocks. And so when they talk, they actually only have a few groups of words in each sentence and they may pause in between each word or they may pause in between each three words. 
and it creates a rhythm. So if you match that rhythm, if you match the rhythm to the way that they chunk their words or the way they group their words together, then that will also help you to create rapport. Rapport is really valuable and it's absolutely brilliant in terms of producing results because it'll allow you to get into greater communication with people. It'll allow you to communicate your ideas regardless of the content. And it's important to be able to communicate with someone regardless of content in order to have your message heard. In other words, it will get through to them. Now, the best thing to do is to begin practicing this. If you have someone who's willing that you hang around with a lot, I suggest you practice with them. So what you do is notice when you're sitting and chatting, notice what you're doing. What are you doing with your posture? What's happening with the spine, the gestures, the facial expressions, the blinking, the breathing? Match their voice tonality. And you can actually pay attention to all of that in terms of matching and mirroring when they're doing the talking. And as you pay attention to this, you'll actually have your sensory acuity to draw on and you'll be able to notice what's going on. Notice what's happening as you're talking to them. And I'd like you to pay a particular attention to matching and mirroring. So it could be someone that you work with, it could be someone that you live with. Just match and mirror people and get into rapport with them. Now, these are the things that are going to make rapport work. They're four indicators of rapport. And they're not traditional NLP, but there's something that's been noticed that happens. So you may want to write these down because these are not in your notes at all. The first indicator of rapport for the practitioner is that you feel a feeling of warmth inside yourself. The minute that you sit down and you match and mirror someone, you may notice a feeling, usually around your tummy, somewhere in the midline in the center of your body. It could be a feeling of nervousness or butterflies in the stomach, but some sort of feeling inside yourself. The second indicator of rapport is a color change. Usually that will start from the neck up and you'll begin to see this in the client's face. They may start to blush a little and you may feel it in yourself first and then see it in the other person. If you don't feel it in yourself first and you see it in them first, then that's fine. And that happens within about a minute following the first indicator of rapport. So the first one is you'll feel a sort of warm feeling inside you around your midline and then a color change, a color change occurs in you and them. The third indicator of rapport, and this is an optional indicator, is usually where the client says something like, I feel like I've known you before, I know you from somewhere, or what star sign are you? Because I feel like I've known you. Or they might say, I feel like I've known you in a past life. This is a common statement for people who've just gotten into rapport with each other. It's kind of that I feel at home feeling, the feeling at being one with someone else. And this may or may not happen. Sometimes people don't say anything. The fourth indicator of rapport is what's commonly taught in NLP as what happens after pacing. So matching and mirroring someone, leading them and pacing and they'll follow you into the new position. So if a client is in rapport, they'll feel like they have to shift position when you do. 
So if you've actually gotten the other three indicators of rapport, and let's say your left leg was crossed over your right leg, if you were to switch and cross the other leg over, then theoretically the client would do the same thing. So from now on, what I'd like is when you're working with people in your career and you're doing NLP with a client or in business consulting or education, I'd like to suggest that you actually get into rapport with every person you're working with. For the purposes of learning rapport, it's easy to do it on a regular basis. And the more you do it, even if you're doing it unconsciously, if you bring it back into consciousness for now, the more you do it, the better you'll be come at it. And you may or may not be comfortable while you're doing it. Of course, I'll suggest that you be comfortable. And a lot of times when someone's learning rapport, it feels a little fake. It feels like this is not normal. So allow yourself to feel these feelings. If you're really subtle, and of course in rapport in NLP, it's about being subtle, then even when you practice, what will happen is you'll get very good at it. And you can match someone very quickly and you can do it intrusively. However, if I was to have a goal for you, it would be about doing it subtly, really, really subtly. So that in a matter of moments, you can be in instant rapport with someone. It doesn't have to be very obvious. But when you're all done, you'll be sitting the same way as the other person. And what I'd like you to do is do enough of these so that you get the feeling inside yourself so that you can get the color change in the other person and then you can be leading them. And when the leading occurs, you can shift and then they'll follow you. They'll stay in rapport. They'll be in rapport with you for a long, long time. So that's the simple use of rapport. The next step is pacing. And that's where you can move quickly with the client. Sometimes you have to slow it down but you can begin to move quickly with the client. They'll be following your lead, essentially. I believe rapport is actually a really strong and important part of NLP. However, it should be used sparingly. This is why it should be used sparingly. It's inappropriate for you to match and mirror clients who are agitated or clients who are depressed or clients who are having clinical problems including physiological symptomology, or if a client's in a state which is inappropriate for you to be in. And if that's the case, you should use crossover mirroring. And crossover mirroring is where you mirror a portion of the person's overt physiology with another portion of your own physiology. Now, Erickson did this all the time. He was crippled from having polio, so he couldn't match a person totally. But I recently saw a video of him and noticed that he would mirror a client through crossover mirroring. For example, he'd match a client's breathing with the movement of his finger. So it's inappropriate for you to be in rapport with someone who's not in great shape physiologically or psychologically. And you need to create rapport when it's a win-win situation. So each time you do rapport, you need to make sure that it's used for a positive intent on your part and a positive intent for the other person. It needs to be a win-win situation. Also, we're opposed to manipulation of any kind. 
The difference between manipulation and non-manipulation, in my opinion, is with regard to intent. So if your intention is positive for your client and you have the highest ecology in mind, then it's impossible to manipulate them. So when you get into rapport with someone, they get into rapport with you. And that's the best way to proceed. So next we're going to move on and look at representational systems. But before we do, what I'd like you to do is take out the representational system preference test and you're going to have to turn to page 17. So would you do that? Go to 17 uh, in the online copy that you have of your notebook and you'll notice that it says there representational system preference test. And I'd like you to use that system to indicate your preferences. Number four is the closest to describing you. Number three is the next best description. Number two is the next, next best. And number one is the least descriptive of you. So if you fill that in on page 17 and then transfer your answers over to 18, you'll get a pretty clear idea of whether you're visual, auditory or kinesthetic. And that's useful before we go on and talk about predicates and representational systems. Before you move on to the next program, make sure you fill out that representational preference test and then you can move on and join us back on program number five.